episode 45 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I had the pleasure in interviewing coach Eric Cressy. Eric Cressy is co-founder and CAO of Cressy Performance in Hudson, Massachusetts and Boston in the United States. Eric is a world-renowned strength and conditioning coach and one of the foremost experts on training overhead athletes. On this show, me and Eric discuss many topics, including Eric's background, influences on Eric both as a coach and as a person, problems Eric sees within the strength and conditioning industry, and training considerations for the overhead athlete. We discussed many other topics on the show, and this was a really, really good show, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Eric Cressy, um, as with all my guests, it's an absolute pleasure and honour to have you on the podcast. As I said to both Mike Robertson and Mike Boyle, who were on my podcast, it's actually a really, really big honour to have you on, because along with Mike Robertson and Mike Boyle, you, you three guys were my biggest influences on me when I first got into the strength and conditioning field. I remember when I was like 21, 22, just reading T Nation all the time, I was like, oh, is there any articles from Eric Cressy or Mike Robertson on this? And uh, so you three guys were without question my biggest influence. So I just want to say thanks um, to you on air. And uh, just for anyone who isn't too sure with who you are, which definitely won't be many people, just fill us in. Uh, sure. Um, so first off, thanks for the, uh, the introduction. Um, you know, I, I'm a guy who owns a facility about 45 minutes west of Boston, Mass. Um, we deal with athletes from pretty much all sports, but um, for the most part, our concentration is working with baseball players. So we have kind of this... Um, unique niche in the shoulder and elbow world. So we do a lot of stuff on that front, and that's what a lot of my writing, my consulting, our product development, things like that kind of works um, its way out as. So um, in addition, I've got a little bit of a web presence. Um, you know, I speak, uh, you know, kind of all around this country and around the world, and, um, you know, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I, you know, I try not to overload the bio too much, but, um, you know, I think I'm a coach first and foremost and kind of a, a writer, speaker, consultant, presenter um, much, much further down the road. Former former powerlifter? Yeah, I, I was a competitive powerlifter. Kind of, uh, I'm tentatively uh, retired right now. I haven't really competed since 2007, but, um, yeah, I, uh, I, have, I have a little bit of a powerlifting background. Eric, who would you say have been your biggest influences, both as a coach and as a person? You know, I think uh, for me personally, my parents, number one, uh, you know, the thing that's that's interesting is, and I talk to my business partner about this a lot, is um, it was really a blessing to have a father who was self-employed growing up because mm -hmm. I, I learned what it was like to have to work for yourself and the sacrifices you made and all that. So um, I can remember him leaving, leaving the house at three in the morning sometimes to go up to go to work and do whatever it was he needed to do. And, um, you know, that's something that kind of stuck with me. Uh, likewise, my mom was, uh, you know, a teacher in my hometown. She's actually still principal of my old high school. Um, and I can remember her, you know, she was kind of like the Mother Teresa of my hometown. When we went to the grocery store, it took like four hours because so many of like the parents of her kids would, you know, stop her in the aisles and thank her for what they did and all that. So she was someone who, you know, like all teachers, was never compensated for probably what she was worth, but she always went out of her way to over deliver for kids. Um, and I can remember, you know, kids who couldn't afford to eat, she would be feeding them out of her desk with, you know, snacks she brought in and things along those lines. So, you know, she really taught me the importance of you know, working hard and not worrying about the, the money, making sure that you're just making a difference. So, um, you know, those two first and foremost had the, had the biggest influence on me. Um, in terms of strength and conditioning, uh, you, it was funny. I actually, I did my undergraduate in exercise science. I'd originally started out thinking I was going to go into accounting, um, and I wound up uh, transferring after my sophomore year of undergraduate education um, to focus on exercise science and sports management. Um, I wound up going up to grad school at the University of Connecticut, not really knowing which route I wanted to take. Um, I actually had quite a bit of interest in, in doing more research on the strength and conditioning side of things. So looking at, you know, hormonal responses to training and, you know, supplemental in interventions and things along those lines. And, um, you know, it was interesting because the University of Connecticut was more of a exercise endocrinology heavy lab. Um, we didn't do as much biomechanic stuff. Um, and when I got there, uh, I had my first article published on T Nation, and um, Brajesh Patel, one of the, the you know GAs, the grad assistants in strength conditioning there, um, when I first got to UConn, had read it, and you know he basically approached me one day. He was like, "Hey, I really liked your stuff. You know, um, you know, I I worked my mojo to get in the lift in the varsity weight room then, and he basically was like, you know, why don't you come to to the baseball strength conditioning session tomorrow morning? Um, it was like a 5:30 a.m. conditioning and. I think in part he was kind of testing me to see how devoted I really was and all that. And um, I showed up the next morning at 5:30 and, and absolutely fell in love with it. Um, you know, it was kind of like a 
defining moment for me when I realized that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to pursue the actual coaching and strength conditioning side of things. And um, I was very fortunate to be at, at UConn because I had some, some very good mentors there. Chris West um, was someone who really kind of took me under his wing. And um, at the time, Chris was you know the associate head of strength and conditioning at the University of Connecticut. So he had men's and women's basketball and men's and women's soccer. So at one point, he had four teams that were number one in the country um, in his weight room. So I got to kind of learn under him and help out and you know, basically contribute to programming and, and be around it. Um, likewise, Tina Murray, who's now um, at the University of Louisville, she was great. She gave us some of our, our first opportunities as interns in strength conditioning. So uh, in addition to that, I got a, a grad assistantship through the, um, the actually the United States Army, helped to pay for my grad degree for some research stuff. So I certainly had mentors on that side of things in the lab. And, um, you know, it really just kind of went from there. I think, you know, you have these people that might not have these huge web presences that people don't really know about, but they, you know, really do have a profound influence on you. Um, you know, in spite of that. So I think we all have a couple of those people in our lives. Um, you know, I had a, a trainer in my hometown named Daryl Conan who really took me under his wing when I was really starting out and gave me my first job in the industry, just working the front desk at his gym. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so they owe a lot to a lot of those guys. And, um, you know, I've had mentors on the business side of things, everything from, you know, Alan Cosgrove to uh, Pat Rigsby and, um, you know, things along those lines. But, you know, on the training side of things, I think I look back to my Yukon days probably the most fondly is having that experience that, that really set me up for success yeah. in, in this world. And did, did you do any work under Bill Kramer there, did you? Yeah, I did. Uh, Dr. Kramer was, uh, you know, at the time he was he was uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, and um, I got to interact with Dr. Kramer just about every day, and um, one of the most brilliant guys you'll ever meet. He, he's forgotten more than the rest of us will ever know. Yeah, yeah. Joke. Um, and, you know, so I was, I was very fortunate to, you know, take a lot of classes with Dr. Kramer, and, um, you know, we had, we had several faculty members there that were really world-renowned, um, Larry Armstrong and Doug Casa and um, Jackie Van Heest and Carl Marish. We had a lot of really, really good professors. Um, Jeff Volek was one a lot of people know because it was his authoring um, of various books and articles. So we were fortunate to have a really good academic experience there and people that had, had kind of done it in the real world too. Yeah, yeah. Eric, this is a question I ask everyone who comes on to the show. What do you think are the biggest problems within the strength and conditioning industry? You know, I think number one is the low barrier to entry. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, I was actually talking about this. I did an in-service for our staff last week on the, I think the title of it was uh, the top 10 reasons trainers are financial boneheads. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I talked about was that the low barrier to entry really skews a lot of stuff. I know Precision Nutrition just put out a little, you know, note a couple weeks ago about the average, you know, trainer salary in the United States. And it, was, it was significantly lower than one would anticipate. And I think that's skewed, in fact, by... Um, you know the fact that there are a lot of people who enter and do this for three months and then walk away from it. So, you know, a lot of people who enter our industry are very transient. They pop in for a couple days and then they decide it's not for them and they leave. And the reason that's possible is because there's such a low barrier to entry. Um, you know, I have, I have a buddy in, in the U.S. here who's a, a personal trainer and he got his pug certified. He got his dog certified online as a personal trainer. So that's the hard part about this. It's 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 no more difficult to become a personal trainer than it is to open a lemonade stand on the side of the road. Oh, yeah. And what you see is, um, as a result of that, you know, we're we're bringing a lot of uh, people who are underqualified, um, you know, into the strength conditioning field, um, and obviously the personal training world as well. And I think where you know that's particularly problematic is you you think about it this way: is if you need a contract written up, you go to a lawyer. If you need your taxes done, you go to an accountant. Um, if you need heart surgery, you go to a <laughs> a cardiologist, um, but for some reason, you know, we think that if you need to exercise, that everyone's capable of writing their own programs, or you can go to just any schlep off the street. And mm -hmm. in reality, there are you know profound consequences to working with someone who's not qualified, not educated, things along those lines. So, so uh, you know, one, one of the reasons why I think we need to continue to raise the bar, uh, I for one am in, in support of, of state licensure. Just not necessarily because I think that going through the, the licensing will educate trainers that much more, but just because I think it will be a little bit more of a roadblock to people entering the, the industry who have really no qualifications. Um, I think it would help in, in the context of you know, not just allowing anybody to go and buy a CrossFit franchise and open it up. Um, you know, I think it'd be good to, to at least put up some barriers that you know kind of make them realize, hey, if I'm going to do this, I need to put three to six months of studying in order to make it happen. Yeah, to be honest, that's uh, one of the reasons we started the Irish Sport Coaches Institute. Um, you know, something we see 
in the future is um, ourselves. We, we see ourselves being that sort of place where people go for maybe their degree or initial fitness courses, and it's more sort of in the trenches internships where it's like a six month to a year placement with an actual coach where you're actually on the floor or out in the field actually coaching. And um, I, I think the Australian Strength and Conditioning uh, Association they actually don't allow you or accredit you the next level so like level one level two level three unless you've actually done a specific amount of hours coaching uh, which i definitely think is the way most accreditations reach or go because you know yourself i mean you could just take as you said like a dog just got certified online yeah. i mean that's just ridiculous no, so you know uh, I, I think i think you know yourself there's a, got a lot of people who come out of college and sports science degrees and they still can't coach. So we're hoping with the Irish Sport Coaching Institute anyway with us that we, we will be that sort of bridge. We, you know, we'll be more sort of the internship. I think internships are definitely big things. I remember I was speaking to a friend the other day and they were like, who would you pick? The guy with a degree in a PhD but no coaching or a guy who had an internship at Cressy Performance or Mike Boyle or Atlee's Performance? I'd be like, I'd definitely go with the latter, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's... Um it's very interesting. Like I don't, I don't know how university degrees are priced o- over in Ireland. But the, the the government actually pays for for education in Ireland. So that's huge. I mean, here in the United States, you might spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars for an exercise science degree that inherently doesn't make you any more qualified than the guy who just decided to go for a weekend certification online or just decided, hey, you know what, I like the exercise. I'd be a good personal trainer. I'm going to go apply. Um, so there's really no separation, and it's one of the reasons why I talk a lot of people about, hey, don't just get an exercise science degree, get a degree that you know will give you a competitive advantage. At least get athletic training so you can, you know, do some manual therapy, do rehab, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, you know, things along those lines go a long way, and it, it's, it's very, very frustrating, uh, but it's it's something that I think that we can address, um, you know, pretty pretty easily, make it a, you know, a scenario where people have to have more qualifications in order to even be put in the position to train people. Yeah, definitely, without question, really without question. Um, assessments, Eric. You, you are a big assessment guy, and obviously, particularly with the shoulder. But let's not limit this, obviously, to the shoulder. Um, but let's just talk about. You know, I, I'm a kid. I walk in. Let's say I'm a pitcher, or or even even just just a normal guy wanting to just to get you know fitter, stronger, move better. What what are the assessments you like to bring people through? Uh, when I when I teach this to our interns during in services, um, I talk about how it's important to have a combination of general and specific uh, assessments. So mm-hmm. if you look at like FMS as an example. FMS starts with a series of general assessments, yeah. uh, your seven-part screen that identify movement dysfunction and things like that. And after that, there are more specific assessments, which would be the SFMA, um, and you know, surely a lot of the orthopedic tests that you know physical therapists might use, um, you know, after they see that something's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's really significant. I think what's uh, interesting about our approach is because we deal with such a specific population, being baseball players, there are certain things that we look at that we really have to. You know, attack them specifically first. Um, so, looking at elbow extension, right? If you can't fully extend your elbow, it's a huge risk factor in, in the baseball world for having elbow problems. Mm. Um, but you know, if you put that into a FMS screen, those people are going to fly, they're still going to pass all seven of those tests with flying flying colors, even if they can't really fully straighten their elbow. Yeah. Um, likewise, we know that if someone has a lot of laxity, like considerable joint laxity they're more likely to rupture their your ulnar collateral ligament, which is a, a big player in, in, in professional baseball here in the U.S. right now. What we see with folks who have a lot more laxity is they actually do a lot better on overhead squat tests, um, on the shoulder mobility screen, things along those lines that, that are more mobility dependent as opposed to stability dependent. So what would look make them look good on a general test actually fails them miserably on a specific test. So for us, we use a combination of the two to make sure that we don't miss anything. And mm. It's just a matter of whether you go specific or general first, but you have to do both. Um, so for us, usually a, a typical evaluation, um, the athlete would come in, uh, there'd be a fair amount of paperwork for them to fill out when they first start up, you know, health history, waiver form, um, you know, medical history, uh, you know, exercise history, things along those lines. We'd sit down, go over it, discuss, you know, their injury history, their, you know, training goals, all that stuff. We'll do that in the office, and while we're in there, uh, you know, particularly with our overhead throwing athletes, um, we'll do like a postural assessment statically there, um, and we'll actually we'll do like a shirtless scapular assessment with our baseball players. So we'll have to take their shirt off. We'll look at scapular control, um, both resting um, and during flexion, abduction, um, a couple different tests. We may do some some rotator cuff strength testing at that point. Um, we'll look at a toe touch. 
and you know, kind of get a little bit of a feel for some of those gross movement patterns. Um, once we've done those, we'll bring them out to the floor. Uh, you know, obviously throw the shirt back on and put them on the table. We'll go through a lot more. I guess you could say classic uh, range of motion tests, looking at hip abduction, internal external rotation, Thomas test. Um, you know, we may use some of the PRI screens. Uh, we'll look at shoulder total motions, so internal plus external rotation. We'll look at supine shoulder flexion to see how lat length is and compare that out to how standing shoulder flexion may be. Um, and then from there, we'll go to an overhead squat. We'll do an overhead lunge walk. Um, we may do a push-up assessment. You know, various things, and, and from there, it's, it becomes a, a day to, to coach and to hammer home technique and to get them started up. So yeah. um, I'm a big believer in that first day is that you're not just standing there staring at them, telling them everything that's wrong with them. You're They're there to achieve a training effect, so you need to make sure that you, you do get them to work on that first day and get them headed in the direction of their goals. Yeah, You just spoke about the rotator cuff there, and th I don't know, th this is kind of a, a debate among people, among certain coaches and, and you know, trainers that... You know, some people are saying there's no need to do this sort of old conventional rotator cuff external rotation, and everyone's just saying you just need to you know do you know heavy carries and deadlifts and pack the shoulder in, and that's enough for shoulder stabilization. But I, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here now. But you still do like to do just some basic external rotations for the rotator cuff. Am I correct, or have you changed your we thoughts? Do a, on that? We do a ton of them. Uh, in in baseball, they matter even more because you know the the primary role of the rotator cuff is to center the humeral head. In, you know, in the socket, in the so obviously yeah. that's a big, big deal, and you can certainly train that by doing bottoms up carries, things along those lines, and we do those a ton. Um, but we also do a lot of rhythmic stabilizations. Um, we yeah. do a lot of manual resist stuff. Think about the cup in baseball players; is it's also incredibly active eccentrically at ball release. Mm. So the posterior shoulder is really decelerating the aggressive internal rotation that takes place when you throw a baseball or javelin or shot put, whatever it may be. So you do need to strengthen it to to eccentrically control internal rotation. That's a that's a big, big deal because you think about all that velocity, um, you know, of, that arm speed is created by the summation of force from a number of muscles in the lower half, transferring force to the lat, all that, and it gets to the arm, and the arm, you know, at ball release during the pitching motion has about one and a half times body weight and distraction forces, um, you know, and on top of that, you're going through about 7,000 degrees per second of internal rotation. The issue with that is that you're asking some small muscles, basically teres minor, infraspinatus, and to some degree posterior deltoid, to slow down the force that's created by, you know, dozens and dozens of muscles in part. So it's very important, I think, to, to actively train it. So we do do a lot of external rotation stuff. Um, I think it's very important. We do a lot of manual stuff, uh, you know, 90-90 holds to get them strong in positions of external rotation. I don't think it's enough just to say, hey, we're going to deadlift, do some rows, and then do some carries, and you'll be good to go. Mm. P PRI, Eric, you, you were the very first coach that I heard speak about PRI out, out of everyone, out of Mike and Mike Robertson and, and Bill Hartman. Um, yep. So what what was I, – I've looked into myself, but what was it about PRI that you were like, oh, my God, this is, this is, this is really important? Yeah, you know what? It, it's actually funny. There's kind of a, an interesting backstory to how PRI happened. Um, I flew out to Arizona. There was a, a seminar put on at Athletes Performance uh, by Major League Baseball. Basically, their athletic trainers put it on. And I actually sat next to Mike Boyle in the back row, and um, we kind of chatted our way through it. And um, it was a DNS seminar, so we went out for to learn from um, Pavel Kolar and um, basically, uh, you know, went through all that. Um, while I was out there, I actually stayed with my good buddy Neil, who who works for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And um, it just so happened that in his guest bedroom was his library. So I, I went out there for a DNS education. And while I was there, I was looking at all these PRI manuals and things like that on his bookshelf. And I was getting a little bit more inquisitive. So Neil pretty much gave me like this you know, hour-long in-service all about PRI, like a private tutorial in his living room, and introduced to me. And it, it really resonated with me. Um, to be honest, I think the thing that was the, the most uh, important in my eyes was that it all came from a very specific anatomical background. Everything had a rationale for it anatomically. And I'm a functional anatomy geek. I was the kid who loved gross anatomy, and you know I could have spent 30 hours a week with cadavers and been perfectly happy just learning. Um, you know, I, I think DNS, on the other hand, is maybe more of a functional background. It talks about the developmental process and you know what we go through as babies as we learn to you know roll over, crawl, you know stand up, walk, etc. With PRI, they were talking with respect to um, you know the the right diaphragm has a more curl attachments to the spine. It's got a more prominent central tendon. 
um, things along those lines that, that really resonated with me. And I'm like, wow, we never learned this in that anatomy book. So I, I took a big interest in it. Um, I went to my first course, um, uh, myokinematic restoration, probably six or eight months later. Um, and what was interesting about it is I went to the course, I saw the anatomic rationale, and started to apply it, but I was totally lost. I, I didn't see the quick return on investment that those guys saw. Um, you know, I kind of stepped, kept with it, kept with it, and went back. Um, I think that first one was in, in uh, February, and I went back in November for the second one, postural respiration. And that was for me when it really clicked, when they started talking more about rib positioning, things along those lines, because it carried over much more to what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, myokinematic restoration tends to be a little bit more lower extremity focus, and postural respiration uh, targets a lot more of the upper extremity. And what was interesting about that is the positional breathing drills, things along those lines that we did, basically had pretty quick return on investments with a lot of our throwers. And I, you know, I, I can remember distinctly, we had a guy who we'd worked so hard to maintain his shoulder internal rotation for the years that he'd been training with us. And I, I went to that event, learned some new positional breathing drills, came back, gave them to him, and he got like 35 degrees of internal rotation in a matter of like 10 seconds. And I just like, you know, face palm and was like, I'm an idiot. You know, I've been missing this for the last couple of years and stretching out a shoulder that maybe didn't need to get stretched. So um, that was a game changer for me. And it's something that has allowed us to reduce the amount of manual stretching we need to do, the remove, reduce the amount of stretching for the upper extremity that we need to prescribe. Um, it's also, you know, to some degree, reduce the amount of manual therapy guys need. Um, I think it helps a lot with recovery in terms of getting guys back from sympathetic to parasympathetic by reestablishing rib positioning. Um, but I think, you know, what's also cool about it is it's, it's, a, it's a framework through which you can view the injuries that you may see. It makes you appreciate, oh, here's why we see more sports hernias on the right. Um, you know, and here's why there's a lot more labral pairs in the right hip. Mm-hmm. Things along those lines make a, a lot more sense now, um, and it's something that we've applied on a, on a daily basis ever since. Well, breathing, Eric, I, I know that's a huge part of PRI, and, and you were even doing it before you, you found out about PRI, but how has breathing affected what you do with, with all your athletes? Oh, it's huge. Um, you know, I think we, we overlook the fact that we take, you know, more than 20,000 breaths per day, yeah. so... There's something to be said about if you have aberrant breathing patterns, um, you know, coming from some kind of postural distortion, that you're going to effectively lay down trigger points in areas where you don't want to lay them down. You may actually lose range of motion. So, you know, if you don't use your diaphragm effectively, what do you have to do? Well, you probably have to use your lats, your pec minor, your subclavius, your sternocleidomastoid, um, all these supplemental respiratory muscles, uh, you know, to basically pick up the slack. And you wonder why guys have trigger points in their scalenes and. You know, they're developing thoracic outlet syndrome, things along those lines. In part, it's because they don't breathe effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, I think what we need to educate a lot of our athletes on is, you know, if you're stuck in extension, you need to learn to get back to neutral. Um, create that good zone where your diaphragm can effectively, you know, function. And that's why a lot of our, our breathing drills, they're, they're conventional exercises, but they're just teaching athletes to fully exhale. So when you exhale, your ribs come down, your pelvis posteriorly tilts a little bit. You get some good recruitment of your external obliques and your anterior core, and you know good things happen when you get guys back to neutral. Most of the athletes we encounter are really, really stuck in extension. I think that's why I saw such a big return on investment with this particular uh, philosophy. You're you're very much known for for shoulders and shoulder health. Just speak about overhead pressing, Eric, um, and speak about you know maybe the difference between the average Joe. Maybe not so much the average show, but but speak about who overhead pressing you could see would be okay for and who it's not okay for. You know, I think it's I think it's pretty pretty simple. I think you know, step one, don't have a huge shoulder injury history. Um, step two, don't have symptoms while you're currently doing it. Step three, make sure that your movement quality is such that it allows you to do it pain free or do it effectively. Yeah. So what that implies is you can keep a, a stable core control situation in place. You can get adequate scapular upward rotation. You have full shoulder flexion at your at your humerus. Um, and what we see is there are a lot of people that overhead press that that aren't able to get there the right way. Yeah. Um, so in other words, to get their arms overhead, they have to hyperextend their lumbar spine, or you know basically have to go into a forward head posture, things along those lines. So I'm not anti overhead pressing. I'm just all about picking the right exercises for the right people. So yeah. you know to that end, I think it's very very important to make sure that. You don't just throw it at everybody. And, and truth be told, most people can't get there effectively. Yeah. Um, what we know about like our baseball pitchers, for instance, is the average thrower 
loses scapular upward rotation over the course of a season. And a lot of them have very gritty, nasty, fibrotic lats. So if you combine those two things, it makes it very difficult to effectively get your arm up and up to throw a baseball, let alone reach all the way overhead the right way. Yeah. And that's what we spend a big chunk of the offseason working on it. So it's the it's the perfect example of what Greg Koch talks about is, you know, don't put strength on top of dysfunction. Yeah. If you yeah. can't get your arm overhead without any weight, why are you trying to load it up that way? Um you know, and, and trying to you know, basically reestablish bad patterns. Yeah, like I mean, uh, one of the best quotes I ever heard from you, and I've actually, I've often, I've often said it, and I often, I always give credit, uh, is uh, don't contraindicate the exercise, contraindicate the person. And I exactly. always, I always love that people. All oh, squats are bad, deadlifts are bad, overhead press is bad, and I'm like, if they're done shitty, they're bad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, anything can be bad if it's not done well. Running's terrible for you if you don't run effectively. Yeah, exactly. Anything. Like, you can get injured doing almost anything. Like, I mean, you know, I've seen people like get achy shoulders from doing a push-up wrong because you know, you 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 know as well as I do, push-ups are probably one of the most butchered exercises out there. Anyway. Absolutely. But, but uh, yeah, I have to say, even like this is why I, I wanted to thank you at the start because when I got into the field first, like it was so helpful to have people like yourself and Mike talk about you know overhead pressing and and you know the fact that most people were kyphotic and they really shouldn't be putting the weight over the head and if they do they'll compensate through you know lumbar hyperdosis and you know rib flare and whatnot. So I kind of knew straight off in my early coaching days I was like. You know, overhead pressing for most people is probably not a good idea, and and I, I still abide by it. Even though for a while there, I kind of went away, and everyone's like, "Oh, you should overhead press; it's healthy for the shoulder." And then I was kind of like, "Yeah, it's healthy if you have good thoracic extension and rotation, but <laughs> which is about maybe ten percent of the population." Exactly. So, uh, I always ask this question too, Eric. Your overall coaching principles or philosophy? I mean, I suppose like knowing just your writings and your you know your books, Maximum Strength, and your latest one. Um, the, uh, you have show and go and then your, your latest product that just came out there high performance handbook like you know there, there's a lot of similarities between the likes of myself and you and coach Boyle and whatnot. but what are your big your big coaching principles What how do you abide by I, I think number one is that understanding progressions and regressions oh, big um, time, yeah. you know I think we always talk about progressions because they're sexier no one ever talks about what do you do if someone doesn't do well with what you've progressed them to how do you bring them back scale them back and then reintroduce movements so that you can get them where you need to be. So I think understanding progressions and regressions is a, is a key principle first and foremost. Um, I think I'm a big believer in, in like we talked about assessment. Um, you know, I, I use the analogy of if, you know, I'll give an American geographic analogy because I know you've been over here and you know how it works, but you know, if, if you and I are both on the East Coast and we both want to go to San Francisco, um, we both know where San Francisco is on a map, yeah. but if you hand both of us a map but don't tell us where we're starting, it's going to be really hard to figure out how to get there, um, simply because we're going to have to effectively work off of a, an assumed pretense. And that's a very, very dangerous thing. So uh, to me, assessment is a huge, huge thing. I think uh, also just the, the importance of teaching things correctly up front. Um, what we do at our facility is, is all, pretty much all of our training is semi-private training. Um, we do a small amount of personal training, but for the most part, it's, it's small groups with individualized programs. And and that's made possible because we do one-on-one -on -one assessments and there's there's a lot more hand-holding, so to speak, early on. So my feeling is if you teach it intensely up front, um, you know, rather than trying to teach 10 people you know, an exercise at the same time, you teach one and you coach it like crazy, most people have um, they're enough of like an open book in terms of movement quality. They can pick it up and then they can ingrain it and understand the progressions later. I think where a lot of people get into problems is they, they learn incorrectly at the start and then they spend years, like we talked about, loading that pattern and creating more and more problems yeah, so yeah. I do think it's important to kind of get away from that yeah. anything else uh, those I'd say those are the big three I think taking it a, a you know a step further is uh, you know I, I think uh, the whole concept of sports specific is a little bit overdone um, you know I think there's a right and a wrong way to move and you have to be a good athlete first before you be become a good baseball player or hockey player or football player yeah. or whatever it may be so that's something I think that gets a little bit overdone in, in today's strength and conditioning field. Um, that that probably be a, a you know a podcast of about an hour in itself. Yeah, more. yeah. I think that's kind of driven more so by parents and you know they want to yeah. say we well, know is this baseball specific or a soccer specific and you're just like our job is to really just enhance general biomotor quality and biomotor quality development and just make your son a better athlete, not necessarily a better baseball player, soccer player, etc. Exactly. Uh, what what have you changed your mind about the most over the last number of years? 
Sorry, I couldn't hear that one. What, say that again? What, what, what would you say you've changed your mind about the most over the last few years? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you know, I'll be the, I used to sleeper stretch guys, you know, guys who had internal rotation deficits. and um, I think that's what we all did back in the you know, 2007, 2008 area. And, you know, going back to the PRI thing we talked about earlier, PRI really changed my, my mind with respect to, you know, is the sleeper stretch good? And, you know, it was interesting is right around we, the time we started getting rid of it, um, we just noticed the guys bounced back quicker. And I actually spent a lot more time teaching people not to do sleeper stretch than I ever did teaching people to do it. So that's one area I've gotten away from is you always want to realize that the shoulder is a delicate joint, right? It's a, it's a multi-directional joint, has a lot of stability sacrifice for the sake of mobility. So you never want to stretch a shoulder unless you absolutely have to. And I think where we've changed is we've learned that, hey, if we spend more work, more time uh, working proximally, establishing rib and neutral spine positioning, um, you know, and then looking at, you know, scapular control, looking at soft tissue quality, things along those lines, we can get that internal rotation at the shoulder back without having a crank on that delicate joint. Mm. Yeah, I think I, well, I remember being at your your shoulder seminar with Mike Reinhold in 2009, and that was I remember that was one of the big teams. I remember that was a huge aha moment for me. You know, this total range of motion of the shoulder. Everyone's like, "Oh, it's good, it's good," and then you guys were kind of like, "Eh, it's actually not good." Look at this. If you add up the whole total range of motion, and we were just like, "That was a huge aha moment." Yeah, GERD, GERD, I mean, glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, as the name implies, it's a measurement. It's not a pathology. Yeah. Um, most of our high level throwers have it. They have it substantially. But their total motion, you know, is symmetrical, so they can get by without it. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I just want to ask you this this question. You know, I mean, it's ne- it's really not so much for myself, and it's more so just for listeners, because people always want to hear this, even though. I suppose you're probably like me, you're kind of probably sick of having to answer this sort of question, but this whole bilateral deficit sort of squatting thing, I actually heard a very good rebuttal by you about that with regards to there seems to be like a certain cap on bilateral deficit, you know, you were saying that like a powerlifter, yeah. a powerlifter like, you know, if he deadlifted 800, 850 pounds, there's no way he'd be able to do half of that, so I found that very interesting, but just give me your take then on bilateral deficit. You know, the funny thing about it is I think that it comes down to like really one simple thing is that you know, people are basically wondering whether it's important to squat and deadlift. You know, it's, it sounds like a, a really silly discussion to me simply because we all know that single leg strength is very, very important for athletes. Um, I don't think there's anybody out there that would, would fundamentally argue with that, but yeah, this is something that gets very hotly contested. So really the question, you know, I think becomes one of, you know, is it important to be strong in bilateral stance? I think so, um, because I do think it's important to be able to put force into the ground in a bilateral context. Um, you know, it's important for you know scenarios where those are the exercises that might allow you more appreciable loading to to put muscle mass on an athlete, things along those lines. And you know, we, we know that guys who have good squats, you know, they, they tend to run faster. Yeah, um, it's the honest to god truth. And 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 so I don't I don't have any problem with single leg stuff. We do a lot of it. Yeah. But where I do have a problem is universally recommending those like these bilateral exercises to athletes. There are going to be athletes that have femoral acetabular impingement where if you squat them, you're going to create a lot of problems long term. You're going to chew up their hip even more and they're going to be right back in there for another labor repair or whatever it may be. So obviously you're not going to squat a client with you know two hip replacements. You know you want to maintain this pattern, but that doesn't mean you need to load it. So um, you know I think the, the bilateral deficit conversation is an important one to have. But I think at the end of the day, that's not really the question we're asking. We're asking whether bilateral strength is important. It is. We just need to make sure we pick the right exercises to develop it. Yeah, yeah. I, I had Chad Wesley Smith on the podcast um, last week, two weeks ago, actually. The podcast went up there during the week. Yeah. And his whole thing was that, listen, he's like, your body is still one organism. He's like, so if you put a, you know, a, a 200 kilo squat on your back, he says that's still 200 kilo to the entire system he says okay you might split squat one, 120 kilo but he says he was like they're still not the same thing your body still has to put more physiological demands to move that 200 kilo in that in that squat meaning that you know and but he, he wasn't arguing that squats were better now he, he was just saying that they're they're not the same like so you, you know you can't be saying that one is better than the other um, and actually Ch- Chad was very much of the opinion that you know he was like to be honest it doesn't really matter at the end of the day we are just general physical preparation coaches he's like if, yeah. you, do- if you don't want to squat an athlete the split squats are fine he's like the resistance that's all it's about you're overcoming gravity with load that's it like he's like at the end of the day are they getting better at their sport exactly that's, and, and are they staying healthy in their sport yeah and are they staying healthy yeah. 
exercise selection is the, probably the most important acute programming variable. Yeah. You take an athlete in the hip, for example, I just mentioned, you know, you split squat them, they're good to go. You squat them, they're, they're not. So yeah. you interfere with their ability to get more technically proficient in their sport. So yeah. um, you know, I'm a big believer that exercise selection is the most important acute programming variable. Eric, just want a quick uh, question on periodization. Like program design, I, I think most top coaches' program design is almost the same. There's always going to be some sort of warm-up, and in that warm-up there'll be some sort of self-myer fascial release, corrective, dynamic warm-up, and then usually they hit their explosive stuff, be that plyos or med ball throws or Olympic lifts or a combination of all three. Then their strength work and usually some ESD at the end or something along those lines. But regards to periodization like I mean what does that word even mean to you and and if it does mean something to you what type or why or which way do you go with it yeah you know I think I mean without without you know touching on in great detail most of our athletes in fact all of our athletes are on what we would consider a concurrent periodization scheme meaning that we can train multiple qualities at the same time there are for instance times when when you know qualities get either mostly or completely back burnered so an example would be when, when guys get back from a long season, we're not going to destroy them for the first month training power. Yeah. Okay, guys, after they've spent, you know, in baseball players, in the situation, the big league baseball player may have, you know, been out there sprinting, standing around in cleats for 200 of the previous 230 days. Um, so they're pretty banged up on that. We don't need to start sprinting them on day one. Um, we're going to give them a little bit of a break from aggressive rotation by, you know, not including any med ball stuff as they first get back. We're going to recharge them. Um, that's a great time to work more on obviously mobility things along those lines but it's also an easy time to get their strength back up so the priorities then at the end of the season tend to be getting rotator cuff strength back normalizing body weight things along those lines and then you know once we've got a couple of months under our belt things you know things progress and we start to add in more of the power development stuff um, things along those lines obviously the more we throw the less upper body stuff we're going to do so you know I, I think the important thing is just to realize that is you know, I, I talk to a lot of young coaches about, hey, you, you can't just keep adding. You yeah. can't take every new exercise that you see and every new training principle and just keep adding it to your program because for everything you add, you have to take something away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just, you know, periodization to me really means that athletes have a limited amount of recovery capacity and we need to decide how we're going to allocate their training stress yeah. effectively. And that's really what it comes down to, whether you want to call it, you know, Undulating, concurrent, linear, whatever. <laughs> yeah, just like all these names. Yeah. Uh, uh, there, there was. I, I, it was funny. With Mike, when Mike Boy was over here in Ireland last week, he had the slide up and he was like, you know, undulating, concurrent, conjugant, and then, and then he, he, he had in question marks MBSC. He goes, are we just integrators? Do we just integrate everything? So he was like, that'll be the next thing. Do you use integration and periodization or? Just, I, I don't know why we're. I wish we were less less concerned with naming it than we were with actually just writing good programs. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's the other thing too. I I've a uh, one of my mentors here in Ireland, Martina McCarthy. She would always say that. She she would always say, uh, you know, when you talk about a coach, she's like, is he a philosopher or is he actually a coach? You know, is he just someone that talks a good talk? But he, you know, can he even coach? Like, you know, so that's where the, really the meat and the potato is. You know, that kind of shop window idea. If I walk past your gym and I look in, am I saying? You know those athletes move well, or am I kind of like cringing and ooh? <laughs> so now that was that was for me one of the biggest feathers in my cap in my entire training career. Uh, Jeremy Hafner is a good friend of mine. He's a he was at the time strength conditioning coach at the University of Georgia, and now he's the strength conditioning coach for for Baylor women's basketball here in the U.S. And uh, um, Jeremy came up for one of our seminars. I think it was like 2009. And when he left, he uh, he sent me an email a couple days later. He's like, just want to thank you for the experience. He's like. I don't know if you realize this, but in, in the entire three days I was there, I only saw one bad rep in your entire gym, and there was someone coaching it instantly to make sure that it didn't happen again. I've never seen that in a gym before in my life. So yeah. we take a ton of pride in, you know, in the, in the technical side of things and making sure that people don't just learn it, but they learn it well and we ingrain those techniques at a young age. So well, that's super important. Yeah, well, I, I can I can definitely atten- uh, you know uh, also second that. I mean, I remember I, I've been in. Crestview performance twice before and the first time was for a visit it was actually in the old well not, not necessarily I know you're in the same location but it was it was the smaller Crestview performance yep. at the time but uh, I just remember it was a Saturday morning it was actually very busy too it was pretty busy and I just remember thinking holy shit like you know this is this is good like you know everyone is pretty spot on here yeah. Um, it's funny too because you, you, you can tell I, I don't know it's, you can always already tell who taught someone the way that to move or whatever, because you know the yeah. way they just even the way they were deadlifting was like that looks like how like Eric or Tony would deadlift right there, like or it was the same when I when I interned at Boyles, like you know you'd say 
you know Nicole or Jamie or Kyle they definitely showed you how to hang clean because that looks like the, how they would hang clean that kind of way so it's kind of funny uh, <clears throat> just just touch on medicine balls uh, Eric you're a huge huge medicine ball fan and can, can you explain that rationale for why you you know you, you go very high volume maybe coming up towards your season you, you, um, with regards to shoulder health yeah I think um, you know where, where we're kind of interesting is back in uh, 2011 if it was like January of 2011 um, I wrote an article for Teenage Nation called What I Learned in 2010. It's something I've done pretty much every year for the last seven or eight years and just kind of recapping things that I'm doing differently each year. And, um, one of the things I talk about is that, hey, I, I just don't think there's really that much carryover between um, linear power training modalities and, and rotational power, meaning I just, I just seen so many guys who throw 95 who couldn't even vertical jump 20 inches. Like it's, it was astounding to me. I mean, I don't know if you guys know Bartolo Colon is. Like, Bartolo Colon is well in excess of 300 pounds. Um, he's throwing in the mid-90s. He's not what we would consider, you know, super athletic in, in any context. So, you know, the question is, why are some of these guys able to do what they're doing? Um, you know, and, and what I started to look to is maybe they're just a lot more efficient with respect to rotation. Maybe we're looking at, you know, two entirely separate qualities. This is the difference between being good in math and English in school. So, um, you know, I basically kind of put it out there. Um, you know, we certainly changed our training philosophies around in light of this. We did a lot less box jumps and broad jumps, and um, you know, obviously we still sprinted and thing, changed directions and stuff like that because that's part of the game. But really, our power development stuff was almost completely shifted to just doing medicine ball drills, mm. rotational and overhead stuff. And what was interesting is right after I published that article, I got an email from a guy named Graham Lehman, who basically was like, "Hey, I'm doing my master's thesis on this right now. I'll be sure to keep you apprised of the results." We're definitely seeing, you know, trends towards what you're speaking of. Um, so I was like, all right, cool. I sat tight for a while, and then the, the journal article actually came out in 2012. They found no, uh, basically, predictive value of vertical jump and broad jump and sprinting speed for throwing velocity. The only thing they carried over were, you know, what we would call like a skater jump um, and rotational med ball throw for distance. So it was kind of like a perfect example of, you know, research sometimes tell the, tells us what we've already learned in the trenches. Um, and it was proof in the pudding that what we were doing was working and, and why guys were seeing you know, more efficient rotation, better throwing velocity, better bat speed, things along those lines. So um, it, was a, it was kind of a cool moment, and that's where our, our medicine ball you know, stuff was really rooted in. And um, you know, it continues to this day. You just need to make sure it's at the right time of year with the right people and that they have the you know, adequate rotary stability, hip mobility, thoracic uh, spine mobility, anterior core control, um, and then you can integrate it effectively. I was gonna manual manual therapy, Eric. You you were also one of the first coaches I heard speak about the importance of manual therapy. I remember you used to give props to John Powell often on your blog. Yeah. Like explain just why you think manual therapy is so important in the recovery process with every athlete. You know the funny thing about it is I'm gonna give an answer that basically means we don't know. Um, if you talk to like Thomas Myers, I remember him speaking in a seminar a couple of years ago about how you know we probably know about a quarter of what we need to know about fascial research. Um, here we are, we're talking to one of the, the most brilliant manual therapists in the world who's studied this for his entire career, and he's saying, yeah, we probably have about 25% of the information. So we don't necessarily know why soft tissue works, whether it's foam rolling, Graston, ART, whatever it may be. I'm sure there, there are a number of different things that work by different mechanisms. It could be you know, changing fluid balance in the tissue. It could be teaching fascia to glide a little bit better. It could be stimulating the autonomic nervous system. It, it could be a lot of different things. Um, you know, and so I think it's it's just important to realize this might be a scenario of something that, hey, we've known for thousands of years that this worked. Um, you know, why not use it? Why not apply it? The question is, you know, how do you apply it correctly? Um, and I think that's what the, the next decade is probably going to be all about discovering. But I'm always blown away when I hear people be like, yeah, foam rolling doesn't work, and I don't believe in manual therapy. It's like, how do you not believe in manual therapy? We've been doing gua sha in China for thousands of years. And people haven't been getting, you know, injured. They're, they've been feeling universally better after it's done. So there's a lot we don't know, and I think manual therapy is probably the best example of it. Final question, Eric. Uh, well, actually, final. La la last few one more after this last question. Yeah. But second last question, just for any of the young coaches out there, resources. So just maybe maybe name like your top three books, DVDs, courses to attend. Yep. You know, what 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 would you what would you say to anyone who's looking for top resources? Well, I'll, I'll give I'll give a couple and discipline. 
Uh, from a training standpoint, uh, I, I really like diagnosis and treatment of movement impairment syndromes um, by Shirley Sarman. Um, Sarman really changed my, my thought process a lot um, with respect to looking at, at movement dysfunction as opposed to just pathology. So don't tell me someone's got a, a torn rotator cuff. Tell me how their scapular control was off. You know, how do they present? So I think Sarman's, Sarman's book is awesome. It, it's a slow read. You might only cover a page or two a day, but it is something that I think will change a lot of people's perspective about what quality movement is and what it looks like. Um, you really need to understand what normal looks like before you can understand what abnormal is. So I, I think that's a good one. Um, you know, I always talk to folks about how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. Yeah. It's a super important book that, that teaches you how to manage the relationships you have with coworkers, clients, uh, prospective clients, athletes, things along those lines. Um, you know, my favorite pearl of wisdom from that book is the best way to win an argument is to avoid it altogether. Yeah. Uh, I'm about the most universally optimistic guy you'll ever meet, and I think that's been a big part of our success here is that we don't get we don't get hung up with bickering on things. Um, so I think that's a good one. Uh, I really like uh, any books from, from Chip and Dan Heath. Um, they're a couple of brothers. One's a, a professor at Duke, and I think the other one's at Stanford. And basically they write about behavioral research, things about uh, you know, how do you make good decisions, how do you pick ideas that are going to succeed, um, how do you affect change in populations. So they have a book called Made to Stick, um, one called Decisive, um, also one called Switch, all really, really good books. So. Um, there's lots of different ways you can look at it, but um, you know that's a that's a business, that's a behavior, and that's a uh, you know a training book for you. I think the biggest thing, though, as as we talked about before, we even hopped on the area, it's it's internships. Yeah. You've got to get out there. You've got to uh, you've got to experience different things. You've got to see different coaches. You know, we have kind of like a universal open door policy. If you know young coaches want to come in and observe how we run our facility, you know, just like Mike, people are always welcome to pop in and check it out. And, I think that's where you grow, is you get out of your comfort zone, you go and look at what other people are doing, and then you, you challenge yourself to think about, hey, is this something that I should include in my philosophy? Um, you know, am I qualified to teach it? You know, what, what do I need to do to get better? And, you know, that's what you need to do is go out and see other coaches do their thing. Awesome, awesome. Just success or, or secrets of your success, Eric, I suppose you kind of maybe slightly touched it there with Del Carnegie and whatnot, but... You know, you talk about Malcolm Gladwell and his ten thousand hours and and whatnot. Like, uh, you know, you're you're someone who's I don't know, you're 31, 32, I mean, you're still extremely young. I mean, and you know, you you've gotten to such a, an amazing point in your career. I mean, even since I was there in two thousand nine, I mean, Cressy Performance has like trebled or, or quadrupled in size. Um, like, what what is the secret to your success? I know even at the start, you, you know, you told your mother have kind of installed a good work ethic as well. But is there anything else you'd, you'd add to that? Um, you know, I, I I think the secret is that there really isn't a secret. You know, I mean, there's there's no magic blue pill or there's no quick fix for anything. I think, um, you know, there are things that I've I've learned to do better over the years that have allowed things to to fall into place a little bit more. I've learned to delegate better and. You know, try to leverage my expertise and uh, a little bit better as opposed to focusing on things that I maybe aren't. I'm not as good at. Um, but you know, I don't know that there is a secret. I think I think it's it's much like uh, success in training and, and you know and performance based stuff is that you know sometimes you have to, to stick with what got you there. And I think for us, what what got us here was you know me putting in a lot of hours and a lot of care. Um, you know, and also us just trying to deliver the best quality product that we possibly can yeah. um, to everyone on a daily basis, and to, you know, to not take ourselves too seriously, to make sure that it was always fun, um, that coming to work was always something we look forward to, and um, that's something that's 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 voted well for us over the course of time. So I don't know that there really is a secret. Um, you know, just trying to work hard and continuing to improve on a daily basis, and making sure you put in the same amount of time at you know, age 32 that I put in when I was 21, it just might be devoted to, to slightly different things. Yeah, you know, I mean, they, they, anytime there's always been like a video up of Crest Performance, it's like, I always think, geez, those guys are always having great fun. So just, that seems yeah. to be part of that, you know, that you know that you love what you do. Absolutely, it's very important. Yeah. And just even with the, the work-life balance, Eric, I know you, you got married, I mean, yeah. very recently in the last couple of years. How, how do you find that with regards to your life? Uh, it's a tough one. My, uh, I'm very fortunate that I have a very understanding wife, and she's actually also self-employed. She has her own practice. She's an optometrist, so she's an eye doctor. Yeah. So that helps. That she she tends to work pretty busy hours, and actually her busiest day is Saturday, and so is mine. So it kind of works out well that we have you know effectively non-traditional weekends. But um, 
you know, she also comes from a family of self-employed parents, so she kind of sees the world through my lens a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's that's the important thing is you have to pick a spouse that understands your life and is comfortable with what you're doing, and you have to support them in the same way they support you. So that's big, but you know, we are talking about ways that we can, you know, find that work-life balance a little bit better, and that comes back to you know making sure that you have a good team around that you can trust with things that you know you otherwise might be having to do. So I do no billing, I do no scheduling. Uh, you know nothing. You know, with respect to the kind of the business side of CP, I can focus on coaching, programming, yeah. doing evaluations, um, things in that vein. But it also has my wife's very actively involved in our facility. I mean, she's in here to, to train five or six days a week, and um, so all of our clients know her. She's a part of this, so you could you could say she's probably as passionate about our business as she is about her own. Yeah, I, I think that's a very very important thing. Um, you know, to find I don't I don't think when you look at people in the fitness industry that you see a lot of opposites attract. Uh, you know, I think you see a lot more of birds of a feather flock together. And my wife loves fitness. I don't know anybody who's successful in the fitness industry who has a spouse that you know just isn't interested in working out or anything like that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm probably not the best guy to to ask about this candidly, just because I'm still working to find the balance. I don't have kids yet. Um, you know, one thing I did do that helped my cause dramatically. Uh, I actually live a 90-second walk away from our facility. So I bought a house that is absurdly close to the gym just so that I wouldn't have to spend time in a commute. So that instantly gained me about an hour and a half of productivity a day. Yeah, yeah. Good old, great, great answer. And then the very final question, Eric, what did you have for breakfast today? I had uh, four eggs, uh, some coffee with vanilla protein powder stirred in. My eggs had spinach, peppers. Um, actually, I had like a scoop of natural peanut butter with it and that was about it. That's awesome. Sounds like a great, sounds sounds like my type of breakfast. I, yeah. I, I had something very similar. I, had, I you know actually this morning I had a what the, I had had an avocado with some berries and protein powder and some coconut oil and spinach and I mix it up and put it into a shake. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a low carb guy. I don't need a bunch of carbs at breakfast. So me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, same with me. I'm just a, a, a you know a green veggie and, and maybe some berries guy and the rest was all meat and fish and poultry. I got you. Yeah, yeah. So, Eric, uh, that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, just stay on the line for a quick second. I'll say goodbye to you off air. For anyone listening, guys, keep downloading the podcast. Keep subscribing. Thanks for your support. I'll talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong. Mm-hmm.